If you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. We are getting back into our sermon series on 2 Corinthians, talking about what is true gospel ministry. And actually, to begin the new year, uh, we're going to look at what this first portion of chapter, or the second portion of chapter 5 is talking about, and that is this, what happened on the cross? How did Jesus accomplish our salvation? As I was thinking and praying and reflecting, I thought it might be good to kind of draw this out just for a couple of weeks to really think about the most central aspect of the gospel. I was a little bit <clears throat> tempted to uh, preach about Peter denying Jesus three times and the rooster crowing, but I felt like that might give people PTSD as the rooster outside of our grounds uh, is here. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you sent your Son out of divine love for your people. And you sent him on a mission that he might save and secure the people whom you would save. And we praise you that it is indeed mission accomplished. But we know that there is still the mission that needs to be applied. And so Holy Spirit, we are asking that you would work in our hearts and that you would visit us now in this moment to apply that work of salvation to us, whether for the first time or whether in your furthering work of sanctification. But we know that you do so through the preaching of Christ crucified. And so we ask boldly in the name of Jesus that you would do so, that you would bring conversions, that you would break addictions, that you would heal relationships, and that you would grant assurance. We know that this is what Christ died for. So we ask all this in his name. Amen. What happens to a church when everyone is self-centered? Well, the story goes that in 1953, and it is a true story, In 1953, two men climbed the 29,000-foot peak of Mount Everest. And ever since then, by the time of 2006, 
uh, more than 50 years after that, more than 2,700 people had also reached the summit of the world's tallest mountain. Now, to do so, you must pay a lot of money. And some people pay anywhere from $60,000 to $200,000 to climb Mount Everest. And one result of this commercial influx has been the erosion of the traditional moral and ethical code of mountaineering. In the rush to the top of the mountain, amateurs who paid a fortune will do anything it takes to reach the summit, including abandoning other climbers who are dying. In March of 2006, this is exactly what happened to a man named David Sharp. The 34-year-old engineer from Cleveland managed to reach the summit on his own. However, he ran out of oxygen on the way back down. And as he lay dying, 40, 40 climbers passed by him. But they were too eager to achieve their own goals to take a chance on off offering their oxygen to someone else. As a result, David Sharp froze to death. And while they were too focused on achieving their own goals, they left David to die. What happens to a church when everyone is self-centered? Or what happens to a church when its leaders are self-centered? Well, whether it's in the church or even in marriages or families or friendships, because of our self-centeredness, we only think about ourselves and accomplishing our goals, and the result is that we leave people dying. Especially in our celebrity pastor age, whenever uh, we adopt that mindset, the celebrity pastor will be so self-centered that he will think more about having cheeks in the seats rather than saving souls. The problem is that we have too much self today. That was the problem in the church in Corinth. It's no different than our primary problem today. You can call it selfishness or self-absorption or self-centeredness, whatever you call it. The primary problem was that they loved self too much. And the result was that in the church's in Corinth, there was relational death, there was spiritual death, there was lack of true pastoral care, and there was the hardening of their own hearts because they weren't prioritizing the gospel. You see, one of the things that our world is often saying today is this, is that our biggest problem today is that people have too low of self-esteem. But really, the problem is this, the problem is that we value self and love self too much. The reason why we are so upset with having low self-esteem is because we wish we were better. That is pride. The problem is that we idolize self, and when we do so, we don't love others. The result is that whenever we are self-centered, we don't tell others the gospel, even though they're spiritually dead, we don't relay hard truths in love even when people are living in sin. And we try, to be everyone, we try to be everything to everyone in the church rather than serving them and helping them depend upon the Holy Spirit. And why do we do that? Because we're obsessed with people liking us. So what's the antidote? 
Paul gives the antidote here in verse 15, if you'll look at it. It says here, And he died for all, that those who might live, note that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, this is part of the good news of the gospel of grace. The good news of the gospel of grace is that you and I would learn to, to live no longer for self, and we would live for God and for others. Amen? You might be visiting this church, and I'll say it again. I am a feedback preacher. I want to make sure you're alive, and also want to make sure you believe this. Part of the good news of the gospel is that we would stop living for self, and we would live for our Savior. And really what we need to do and what Paul does, he shows us this. How does this happen? How do we actually end up repenting of self-centeredness? He actually gives this fundamental statement about knowing what happened on the cross. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The question is, and yeah, it's a, <clears throat> forgive me, I'm, I'm not coughing because I'm sick, I'm coughing because I'm trying to clear my throat. Um, the hot topic theological question is this, who did Jesus die for? Well, we have to, in order to come to the answer to that, we have to get at and answer a couple of other issues. First off, when we think about who did Christ for, die for, we have to remember this, what is our primary problem? The primary problem of humanity is sin. In the very beginning, we sinned against God as Adam, our covenant head, as he broke the covenant of works by taking the fruit and eating it. And when he had eaten it, it brought about a curse upon humanity and everyone who would come after Adam and Eve by ordinary generation. The problem of sin is that we have broken God's law, and the punishment for that is death. That's why Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Sin and death are our problem, but really, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem, in light of our sin and death, is this. Our biggest problem is God. Why is that? Well, because God is good, and we are not. Because God is just and holy, and we are wicked, and we deserve condemnation. It's because God loves holiness so much that he will show wrath upon unholiness, and we are the ones who are unholy, and we deserve his wrath. Our biggest problem actually is God, and it's not his fault, it's ours. And this is what God did because of this problem. He sent his son, as I was preaching to the children earlier, he sent his son out of love, even though we still stood at enmity with him. It's interesting, there's a quote that you have in your bulletin in the insert by a theologian named John Murray. In there, John Murray says this, that the problem for humanity was that God's anger and his wrath is upon them because of their sin. But what did God do to solve that problem? Out of love, he sent his son. 
The cross does not earn the love of God. The cross happened because of the love of God. Nevertheless, God must do something about his anger. If his anger is not poured out and his wrath is not poured out upon sin, then he is no longer just and he is no longer good and therefore he is no longer God. So he must deal with sin. So what is his solution? His solution is that he would send his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, would take on flesh and he would come into our place. You see, because Adam and Eve, because, or really because of Adam as the covenant head, because Adam broke the covenant of works, Jesus comes down to do what Adam didn't do. And here's what he does. He does two things. He not only fulfills the covenant of works by having perfect obedience, he never sinned once. His whole life was unstained by sin. He was perfect from conception to death. He fulfilled the covenant of works, but he also did this. He took the covenant curses. Because the covenant was still broken and therefore the curses were still there. Someone, if we are going to be saved, must not only live for us, but they must die for us. And that's what he did. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, but he also died the death we should have died. It is what we call Jesus' active and passive obedience. His active obedience is really his whole life, even the cross, in him always obeying the Father perfectly. And the passive obedience is this. It doesn't mean that he was just like sitting back saying, oh man, all this is happening to me. That word passive actually has to do with the word passion. It's what we call passion week. It's actually called his sufferings, him taking the wrath of God, uh, most culminating on the cross. So the active and passive obedience is saying this, that Jesus not only fulfills the covenant of works with his obedience, but he also takes the covenant curses. He fulfills what needed to happen for our salvation. Now, here's the question that we're getting to and what Paul's getting to. <clears throat> Did anything happen on the cross? If, if nothing happened on the cross, then what did he do? What did he do it for? Was it just an example of love? And if it's just an example of love, then that doesn't solve the problem of God's wrath for sin. If nothing happened on the cross, then salvation was not accomplished and you and I cannot be saved. Something must have happened on the cross, and we see it very clearly in Scripture, in order for us to be saved. So what did happen on the cross? Well, the first thing that well, one of the things that happened is that he paid for our sins. This is the word we use called redemption. To redeem means to obtain someone's release. It is by making a payment and getting something in return. Let me give you an example. This is the first thing that came to mind, so just judge me however. 
But I was thinking back to, I think, sometime last year, year and a half ago, and my wife is really nervous now. Uh, we, were, we were at uh, the world-renowned, maybe eighth wonder of the world, Chuck E. Cheese. And what do you do at Chuck E. Cheese or other places, Dave and Buster's, wherever places like this? Well, you play games and you earn tickets, and then what do you do with those tickets? You redeem them for a toy, which for us was like a toy that lasted probably 30 minutes. Um, I won't name names of why that happened. Um, but you get the idea. You earn something, and you use that to pay it, and you get something in return. That is what it means to redeem. What does Jesus do on the cross? He redeems his people. He makes a payment of himself to redeem and purchase his people. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him, talking about in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Notice that it is saying redemption happened on the cross. Now, <clears throat> that makes sense because when Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, well, what is the payment? What is the price? It is death in its most full form. It's not merely physical death. It's spiritual death. It's taking the wrath of God. It's relational death. It's emotional death. He took the fullness of death to redeem us. And if he has redeemed us, then he is requiring no more payment. Amen? He died our death. He did not only pay for our sins, but he died our death. You see that in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Jesus, in order to save us, he must die and pay the full payment. Because if there's anything left over, you and I must pay. And if you and I must pay, it is no longer by grace that you are saved. You must earn it. Jesus, rather, he makes the full payment. He died the death we should have died in hell. And that's what happened on the cross. What made the cross so excruciating, it was not merely the physical death. He took the wrath of God. He absorbed it. He took hell so that you might have his heaven. Amen? Are we, are we awake this morning? He took hell to give us his heaven. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Romans 6.8, Now if we have died with Christ, the payment being made, we believe we will also live with him. In other words, if Christ died, then we might have spiritual life. There is no more need of us to pay anything because Christ has paid it all. This is why when Paul says in verse 14, <clears throat> when it says Christ died for all, and I'll talk about what that word means in a second, that Christ died for all and therefore all died. So here's the thing. If Christ died for the all, 
and I'll explain that in a second. And therefore, those all have died, then there is no more need of any payment for salvation. Does that make sense? So then the question is this. Some people say that what happened on the cross is that Christ died for every individual that has ever existed. If that's the case, then every individual who has ever existed would go to heaven because Christ made the payment. He stepped in the place. He was the substitute. So really, it is this. Because something actually happened on the cross, either everyone who has ever lived is going to go to heaven, or either there is a different way of interpreting this. If Christ died for every individual without exception, then why would people still go to hell? And here's the thing. If Christ died and paid the payment for every individual out there, but yet some would still go to hell, then how would God be just and righteous to make two payments? How unjust and unrighteous would God be to pour out his wrath on his son for someone who would still go to hell? He would not be God. You see, <clears throat> if Christ did what he did on the cross, and if he did that for all people without exception, then all individuals ever would be saved. That would be the logic of that. What we know happened is that Christ took the curse. Heidelberg Catechism question 39 says this, By this death I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. You see here in Galatians 3 very clearly Paul says, that for all those who rely on the works of the law, they're under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall be, uh, excuse me, the one who does them shall live by them. So what is the way in which we're saved. Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, very clearly in numerous places in scriptures, it is saying that on the cross, God poured out his wrath upon his son to make the once for all payment so that he might purchase people for salvation. Amen? That is what Jesus means in John 19.30 when he says, it is finished, not it is possible. It is finished. That the one payment was made by Jesus Christ, and what we believe happened, and what we see in Scripture is this, is that God is satisfied. Hebrews 2.17 <clears throat> 2, says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and listen to this, in order to make propitiation for the sins of his people. What is that word propitiation? 
Here's what it means. What does sin deserve? It deserves death and God's wrath. God's wrath results in death. That's really what it is. And Jesus, to be the propitiation, is saying this, that when he went to the cross, God poured out his just wrath upon his son, and now God says this, I'm satisfied with that payment and that payment alone. It's the same thing like the Passover lamb with the Israelites in Egypt. That all you must do to be delivered is have the blood of the lamb over your doorpost. Who is the blood of the lamb? Jesus Christ. Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Never with any contribution from us, never with any cooperation from us. Jesus and Jesus alone goes to the cross and makes a payment for people to be saved. Amen? In other words, what happened on the cross is that he saved us. It's in the past tense. It's applied to us at some moment in our lives, maybe even on our deathbed. But the salvation was secured 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem. Amen? Is that not awesome? In other words... We get back to our question, who did Christ die for? If Christ did what he did on the cross, and if he did that for every individual person who has ever lived, then everyone would go to heaven. But we see very clearly in Scripture, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 25, and Revelation 20, along with numerous others, that people still go to hell. That's the very tragic reality. And you will too, unless you believe in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you and I can be saved. It's interesting, and I, it's just crazy that some people will call what I just said. They'll say, even though I'm saying it in this tone and my voice is kind of hoarse, they'll say, he's yelling at me and it's fire and brimstone preaching. My friends, if you were laying down on a train track and a train was coming... What do you think would be most loving of me to do? Say, hey, you know, if you just had a little more self-esteem, you just get up and just come on over here and it'll be fine. Are you kidding me? My friends, one of the most loving things I can tell you is that without Jesus Christ, you are in the way of God's wrath. Now, I am yelling now because I'm excited. But you are in the way of God's wrath, and it's coming down upon you. And what Jesus has done to give salvation to his people is he stepped between you and God. And he absorbed it. And he drank all the wrath of God so that you would never have to add anything to it. All you have to do is believe. Amen? So what do we see who Jesus died for? What, what do we see? What does Paul mean when he says all? <clears throat> when he says all, he does not mean merely Jewish people. He means all peoples. He means that any ethnicity, any person, no matter what their sin could be, anybody can look to Jesus Christ and be saved. And everyone who looks to Jesus Christ and believes, that is who he died for. 
On the cross, who did Jesus die for? He died for all the elect. And on the cross, he purchased their salvation. And the reason why any of us ever believe is because 2,000 years ago, he purchased our ability to believe. Amen? On the cross, Jesus Christ took the wrath of God for all the people who he chose before time began. Not looking at any of their works because all he would see is your sin anyway. There is no cooperation that you and I have in this. There is no ingredient of us in this besides him freely placing his love upon us so that Christ might die for us by name. And it is all of grace. And what that means is this, because we do not know who the elect are. But because of the surety of that payment, I can look out at each and every one of you. And no matter what sin is happening in your life or what has been in your past or what could be in your future, I can look at any one of you and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen? <clears throat> there was a young lady I was talking to the other day at the uh, Payne County Jail. And it was, as you would imagine, the type of background where you would say, surely not this person. Because really, it's only, only people who are saved are the people who are always coming to church and they're always wearing suit and tie and looking good and saying the right things, having the right haircut, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the reason why I told her and... and did my best to compel her to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is not because Jesus made it possible, but because the salvation was so utterly sure that he died for all the elect and he so purchased their salvation that I can look at this person and say, no matter what has happened in your life, if God has elected you, he will save you. And I have utmost confidence that that word will never return void. Amen? What Paul is saying here is that how do we learn to repent of self-centeredness? He is saying the fundamental motivation and the spiritual transformation that happens in our life so that we would learn to repent of being self-centered is by looking what Christ did for us. That is what produces true love. We see in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross and when he died, he did not merely die on behalf of humanity. He died as a substitute for all of his people. It was so personal. And he knows you by name, and your name is written in the book of life. And he is undefeated in getting his people. Because God will not bring justice upon his son and then also justice in hell. Amen? We'll get into more of this in the coming weeks and apply it. 
But the big thing is to see this, is that salvation is absolutely, totally free. Once again, it's like that commercial that's out right now. Free, 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 free. And we know we're growing in Christian maturity the more we learn to repent of saying that I do something to contribute to that or to keep it. Christ purchased your ability to believe. He purchased your justification. He purchased your regeneration. He purchased any sort of Christian growth and good works that you have. He died for it all. That's the only reason why you and I are able to see those fruits. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. That is what happened on the cross. That's why Paul says, what is going to be the biggest ingredient of helping this church in Corinth to be selfless is to see the self-sacrifice of Christ. Paul is saying this. The reason why I am doing ministry in the fear of God, not in the fear of man. The reason why I am speaking hard truths to you in love is because I'm not focusing mainly on oh man, I hope I have a massive gathering and all these people like me. That's not what he's doing. He is saying the reason why he's being an actual pastor to people is because he is so convinced that Christ died for him. That's the truth. Now how does this affect the Christian today? Arguably, the biggest problem that we experience today is some form of insecurity. Sometimes insecurity is very noticeable. Other times it is covered by a macho, bravo, I don't need anyone mentality. All of us at some level struggle with insecurity. Insecurity is the thinking and the living as if you are not secure, whether in your identity, uh, whether in uh, the people who love you or whether the gifts God's given you. Insecurity happens because when we forget God and the gospel, we look at ourselves and we say this, I must be enough or do enough to prove. That is living like we're still in the covenant of works. But because Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works, we have no longer any need to be insecure. In other words, as a believer, you don't have to to live and embrace insecurity anymore. Matter of fact, you must not embrace insecurity. You must repent of it because Jesus has secured you. Amen? You have nothing to lose because God has placed his infinite love upon you. What else can the world offer you? You see, when, whenever we're living in insecurity, we're, we're always living as if we have to prove ourself. And whenever we're living as if we have to prove ourselves, then we become very self-centered. And we either try to do this. We either live in such a way where we say, I got to make sure these people like me. So I will just, I'll be one way over here or I'll be another way over here. Or we'll do this. Sometimes we try to earn security by being known, frankly, as uh, the jerk. That's, or the funny guy, or the athlete, or whatever it is. Either way, we're trying to do something to earn. But Jesus Christ has earned everything. 
He is your identity. He is your security. He is your love. He is your sanctification. He is your power. All you need is in him. In the church in Corinth, people were living in insecurity, and they were constantly doing this. They were saying, well, who has the most gifts? Who's the celebrity pastor of the age? Who's the leader? Who's the one in the position of authority? Who's the one who is noticed? Who is the one who is important? And if I'm not that, then I'm nothing. And Paul is saying, repent of that. Why do you repent of that? Because Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone has saved you. Amen? All the gifts that you and I can have, where do they come from? They don't come from us. They come from him. What about the personality or the bodily health or the connections within society or the jobs we have or the children we have or whatever it is? Who has given us all those things? God has. We have no reason to boast, but we have every reason to be thankful. And whenever we're living in insecurity, the posture we have is self-absorption. And whenever anyone else gets in the way, we lash out at them. But what the gospel does is that it turns that upside down. Because on the cross, Jesus gave us what self-love could never give us. Self-love is never the answer. The love of Christ is the answer. I would not want to have the perfect self-love from myself because I'm a finite being. Christ is infinite. I would rather have his love. On the cross, Jesus gives us an identity that we could never achieve or we can never be born with. And that identity can never be taken away from us. The cross gives us a clear conscience that we could never earn. You see what, why Paul is getting back to the cross. Dear believer, what you must believe is that Christ died for you. Amen? You need to prove nothing because he's already done it. And what happens is that the more, the more we grow in that assurance of knowing that Christ has died for us, what Paul says, we learn to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. That is what we call the chief end of man. What is the chief end of man? <clears throat> the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But if you're so self-absorbed, you're not going to notice God. Thank goodness the gospel saves us from the tyranny of self. Amen? Do you know what that actually does in a church? Here's what it does. The more I grow in being assured of my standing with Christ, my identity in Christ, and what the cross has done for me, I actually can get out of myself and start looking at other people and just love them and stop having to prove and if someone is more upfront than me, or if someone has other gifts or opportunities than me, praise the Lord that he has given that to them. But I know that in Christ I am content because I have him. That makes a healthy church. And by the way, that is a church that will stand out like a sore thumb, but a good sore thumb, in the midst of a celebrity Christian age. Let us repent 
trying to live for self because we have everything we need in Christ. During an extremely hot summer in 1965, some parents had taken their four-year-old son named Roger. Not that Roger. I'm just pointing at him. They had taken their four-year-old son, Roger, to the beach in Salem, Massachusetts. He was having a great time. He was building sandcastles and watching the waves crash into the cliffs. And he was enjoying the sunshine. But at one point, there was a drop-off on the cliff, and he had slipped and fallen and had found himself in the water. As a four-year-old who didn't know how to swim, he tried to cry out, but water was sucked into his lungs. A moment right before he was about to drown, some strong arms had grabbed him, and a woman had carried him to shore. Her name was Alice. Obviously, Roger never forgot Alice. Then, nine years later, Roger was now 13. He returned to the same beach. Now, by that time, he was very strong for his age, and he could swim, so he decided to go for a swim, and As he was laying his towel out on the beach, he heard a faint cry calling out for help. And he quickly turned around and he saw two arms waving in the deep water. A man was fighting for his life. Roger quickly grabbed a raft and he began to paddle out into the water to save the man. And so he reached out and grabbed the man and pulled him up onto the raft and they swam back to shore. Later on, he found out a very strange piece of information. That man was Alice's husband, the lady who had saved Roger nine years prior. Do you know what's very fascinating in just this very earthly story? Is that because Roger was saved by someone else, whenever he saw someone in danger, he didn't have a moment's hesitation and he went and saved them. You see, whenever you are gripped by the love of Christ, of him saving you and absolutely saving you, and it is so secure, you can finally stop being obsessed with self. And you can go out and love others. That's what the gospel of grace does. Amen? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father... We are asking that you would take this text and maybe it needs to be wrestled in some of our hearts. I know for me, it often does. Other times, gently applied. Lord, you know where we are and what we need. And you also know who we need to talk to this week about the love of Christ. So minister to us. Not only minister to us from the word, but also from the sacrament. And so prepare our hearts for that. Lord Jesus, we ask all this in your name. Amen.